The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, insert stupid joke here and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 377 with guests Ted Neward and Amanda Locker, recorded live Monday, August 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telera, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just remembered where he left his thermometer, Carl Franklin! Ah, God, I hate it when I do that. Welcome back to .NET Rocks, folks. It's Carl Franklin. I'm here in New London, Connecticut. On the east coast of the United States, Richard Campbell is still climbing that silly Mount Everest, but he will be back soon. Uh, he will be here, of course, for the interview, which was pre-recorded. As you may or may not know, we're in the throes of the .NET Rocks Tech Ed Europe sweepstakes, in which one lucky winner will get a expense-paid trip to Barcelona, Spain, for TechEd 2008 Europe, of course, your incidentals are not paid, but we will fly you there, and we will pay for your hotel, and we will get you in the door. That is happening November 10th through the 14th in Barcelona, and all you have to do to win is go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona, or click the Barcelona picture on the .NET Rocks homepage, and uh, answer a question about a previous week's show. If you were paying attention, you'll probably know the answer to it. It's a simple question. One winner is picked every Tuesday from those who got the question right. And uh, the weekly winner wins a fabulous Tom Bin brain bag. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N.com. Or you can click the brain bag link. These are the most indestructible, most incredible backpacks, rucksacks, and other kinds of wear. Uh, they just never break, they never tear, they never rip or shred. Uh, those winners will go into the pool to win the trip to Barcelona. The winner we will pick October 20th. This week's winner is Luciano Criscola, who correctly answered last week's question, which was about Brian Noyes. 
what was his status at Microsoft while he was working on the PRISM project. And the correct answer was that he was a vendor. So Luciano Criscola from Argentina, from Buenos Aires, Argentina, is our winner this week. Congratulations, Luciano. We'll be uh, contacting you very soon about uh, that brain bag, and good luck with the contest. And now it's time to introduce our guest. And, and Ted, uh, I'm really going to read your bio this time because your position in life has changed. Yes, it has. Ted Neward is a ThoughtWorks consultant specializing in high-scale enterprise systems. He is an authority in Java and .NET technologies, particularly in the areas of Java.NET integration, both in process and via integration tools like web services, back-end enterprise software systems, and virtual machine execution engine plumbing. He spends a lot of time around programming languages of all stripes and colors, and is convinced that one day Lisp will take over the world, at which point he will retire and take up something less stressful like air traffic control. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome, Ted. Thank you, Carl. And Amanda Locker is a consultant for the SOFIC Group in Columbus, Ohio. She's recently been focusing on coaching agile principles at large corporations. As a language geek, has spent the year traveling to code camps and user groups on the East Coast and Midwest, sharing her knowledge of F-sharp. When she isn't developing, Amanda is busy promoting women in science and technology. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Richard, do you ever notice how Ted never uh, shows up on the show by himself? He always has a crutch. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always, you know, some interesting person and some guy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's Amanda and some guy. That's it, basically today. The reason well, see, the every- problem, guys. The problem is that I'm not. I, I'm concerned that if we did a show with just me, I'm not sure you guys could handle. Ah, uh, you know, she think we could handle it. That's right. He's just looking out for us. We actually have two brains to your one, so I, I think, <laughs> I think you would be outclassed, maybe. Well, I mean, this is not a question of class. This was a question of outnumbered. Never mind. This can only get worse. Uh, maybe outnumbered was a better word there. But anyway, the reason <laughs> that we said some guy is a very interesting story. Amanda, maybe you should tell that story. Um. Well, Ted and I were giving a talk at the DevLink conference this past weekend. And we were flipping through our evals, seeing how great we did. And we noticed somebody had given us all fives, all perfect score. And they put the the authors there as uh, Amanda Locker and some guy. <laughs> I love that. They remember the important person. Well, the best part of this thing is, you know, everybody else who was speaking at, at DevLink had seen this eval before I did. So everybody's like, hey, look, it's some guy. And I'm like, what the hell are you people talking about? <laughs> oh, no. I, oh, I, by the way, I just checked through the archives. Ted Neward has done three shows with various other guests. All different too. They've never come back on with him, which is interesting. <laughs> and uh, and three shows on his own. I guess okay. I should be nervous then. <laughs> so this would be the fourth show with another guest. So I guess it's not that it always happens, but the majority of times he's been on. It is, been yeah, him. as of this show, it is now the majority. So what are we talking about anyway today? I don't know. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dotnet Rocks has been brought to you by Pwop Productions, uh, providing audio production services. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a great show. <laughs> Turn in your email. Some guy. Someday. Some guy. It's F sharp, darn it. Do we F-sharp. need to revisit F sharp? You know, we've done a whole bunch of shows on it, actually. We did. We understand a little bit about functional programming now that we've done those shows. And um, F-sharp has been around for a while now. What's new? Well, um, for starters, you know, the, the this was announced and, and, you know, people have been making some noise about it, but then the noise had kind of died down for a little bit. You know, F-sharp is in the process of being productized. As a matter of fact, as we speak, the F-sharp team, I know for a fact, is working on a CTP uh, and should be out you know, real soon now, whatever that means. RSN. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we're 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 that we're quickly approaching a point where you know functional languages are, you know, despite the fact that people have been saying it for years, it may actually come to pass. Functional languages could go mainstream. Dun dun dun. But the, I mean, the main reason is that they're actually got F sharp working in the CLR, so we get to use right. Studio and work in the environment we're used to. Well, now, what do you mean go mainstream? That could mean a bunch of things. Well, I mean, mainstream in the sense that, you know, there's there's people beyond academics and researchers using it. I mean, I understand as, oh. soon, as, as soon as I say that, there's going to be some guy out there who spent, you know, significant amounts of time working in Haskell and doing it for a company who's going to send me hate mail and say, rah, 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 functional languages are great, rah, 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 rah. But the truth of it is, you know, you walk up, you know, you, you go to TechEd, right? You go to any 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 large technology conference and you say, hey, what do you know about functional languages? And people are going to be like, you mean the languages that work as opposed to the dysfunctional languages? What are you, uh, what, where are you going with this? Um, oh, come on. That's the best joke in my whole good. repertoire. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, Didn't make me know, laugh out loud, but it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Moving Carl. On. On. No, no, no. That's it. That I'm done. I'm done. Okay. I can't go on. <laughs> He's traumatized. Again. I'm traumatized. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I don't. I, I. I can't. I can't perform this way. No. I mean, seriously. You know, it's. It's. There's. We're. We're reaching a point now where you know, casual programmers, hobbyists, as well as the working programmer, they. They're. They're hearing about this, and they're starting to see that there is, in fact, some particular. You know aspect to them there is some element to them that is that is good important viable you know relevant to their daily life to their to their job right and this is something that had not been true you know even a couple of years ago well cuz when you said go mainstream i i thought uh, you know he might be talking about just become available you know in the box but uh, I always see a little bit of a disconnect between functional languages and mainstream applications, like line of mm-hmm. business applications. And and I think it was you who said, no, actually, you could you could uh, be programming your line of business applications with a functional language. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a variety of ways to think about this. You know, I, are we gonna? Do I envision a future where like F Sharp somehow takes over? You know. And and suddenly C sharp and VB are on their way out. Probably not. Which right? would mean that everybody gets it. Uh, the epiphany, the light goes off, and the whole world becomes enlightened and changes well, the way they do things. 
I want to be kind of careful here because I don't want to stand up and try to suggest that, you know, functional languages are somehow better and a step further up the evolutionary ladder than object languages because that's really not what the F-sharp team is trying to do and that's really not what other, you know, functional proponents who are talking about functional languages, thinking specifically of Scala in the Java space, they're not trying to stand up and say functional is better and you should stop programming in objects. What they're really trying to do is they're trying to bring the two worlds together, mm-hmm. right? Because it's um, not like there's no objects in F-sharp. Right, exactly. There's, I mean, it's built on top of the BCL, right? The CLR itself is, is an object-centric environment, right? right? And that's what makes F-sharp good. It's multi-paradigm, so you can be doing your objects as well as your functional. It, they're used together as opposed to one or the other. Amanda... Just for folks who haven't listened to all the other F-Sharp shows out there, maybe we just got to define what does it mean to be a functional language? Well, functional languages have lots of, th- lots of things that object-oriented languages don't. Well, for one, they're, everything is immutable by default. Um, there's no state. You're not, you're not having side effects with your, when you do changes. You're only changing them in one spot, so you're thread-safe. It's basically right. good for concurrency. Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely still have our need for object-oriented. I mean, so many developers out there now are thinking in objects. We spent so long getting everybody to be thinking in objects. We don't want to stop that, obviously. And there are places where where functional languages are are better suited. They're you know they're not going to be used in the UI necessarily. They're going to be used as a DLL that you're going to call off to from your UI. I think of functional languages as being quite recursive. Right. You use recursion instead of loops. Um, yeah, it's it's a different way of thinking. You're not thinking in terms of, you know, what what are the the nouns that I'm working with. It's mm-hmm. more what are the actions that I'm I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, you know, it 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 sort of dovetails very nicely with a lot of where people are going in terms of service orientation, right? There's this there's this idea that we're going to have services that we're going to call out to these services and ask them to perform some some kind of action or or, or respond to a particular type of request, et cetera, et cetera. Right? All the things that we hold up that's good about services really you know aligns very strongly with a functional language. So you know, practically speaking, right? I can imagine a world where a lot of our Possibly, you know, probably not all, but a good percentage of, as in potentially the majority of, our WCF services are written in a functional language, a la F-sharp or, or, you know, something along those lines. Um, Because a lot of the things that we like about, you know, F-sharp, the concurrency aspects that Amanda mentioned and so forth, they, they dovetail really nicely with building a service. And, you know, will we end up building WinForms apps in F-sharp? I doubt it. Could we end up building websites? Maybe, because HTTP is intrinsically, intrinsically a, a functional operation. But, you know, um, I don't necessarily want to want to try to stand up and say, oh, yeah, F-Sharp will take over the world. I, I don't want us to go there, quite frankly. I want us to get to be less, you know, single tool centric and more, you know, have lots of different tools to be able to work on lots of different problems. Right. With service-oriented architecture, that's... A- that's how I actually started learning functional programming. You you have inputs, and they always produce the same output. Every function that has any input will have the same output for that input, and it's the same for SOA. So when I started thinking about it that way, and you don't have side effects, 
that's how it's easier for people to start grasping that concept. Now, you guys have worked uh, and are working together on a book in F-Sharp, and you're working together uh, doing presentations. What are some of the um, what are some of the demos that you guys do to to sort of uh, illustrate the power of F sharp? Well, right now, to be honest with you, um, we're 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 kind of at a point where we're just trying to get we're just trying to get some of the basic concepts across. We're just trying to sort of get people to the point where they can you know understand and and proceed forward with you know their own research because this is you know calling the spade a spade. This is as much of a thought process shift as 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 it is for most people when they went from procedures to objects. You remember that way, way, way back when, when we were, you know, making that transition from languages like C and Pascal over to C++ and Smalltalk and Delphi and, oh, I'm sorry, Delphi wasn't around, Turbo Pascal. You know, there was this notion of, all right, first we kind of have to get some of the syntax under your belt so that you can kind of see where we're going with this. And we'll talk conceptually about where this will be good. But at this point, I mean, if I were to stand up and say, all right, let me show you an asynchronous workflow, as they call them in F-sharp, um, which is, you know, a way of being able to, you know, take operations and, and essentially process, I don't want to say process them concurrently, but process them simultaneously, whether they're on separate threads or not, kind of, you don't know, you don't care. And, what I found in, in trying to do that with certain, you know, with certain discussions and certain examples, people got really, really caught up on the syntax and trying to understand it from sort of a C-sharp object-oriented perspective. So right now, I'm not even going out there and trying to sell people on, you know, the killer app, the killer idea, the killer demo. It's more like, look, if how many people in this room write perfectly thread-safe code? Nobody puts their hands up, Right okay, let me tell you about a way in which we can program this style of programming. And, and you know, that is enough, just right there, just the suggestion that maybe we can let a language worry about some of the concurrency issues for us is enough to sell people on, well, I want to at least take a look at this. Uh, this is kind of where Ted and I differ. Before we met, I was off giving, you know, giving demos with, here's your WinForm calling off to your F-sharp library that has asynchronous workflows. And so we're doing multiple things at the same time, and I would show how they're they're operating on different threads and that sort of thing. And we'd have people walking out of the room saying, oh, my gosh, my head is fried. I have no idea what's going on. And then I meet Ted, and we do a presentation together. Then it's kind of like, let's walk through these basic examples and show people what is what is a tuple, what is currying, how do we do these things in F-sharp, what are the concepts that they've never seen before, and show yeah. them the basic syntax of that. Yeah. That's absolutely necessary. I mean, you basically got millions of programmers who've never heard of functional programming. Yeah. But I'm fascinated that you've actually built multi-threaded demos like that, Amanda. How'd you do it? Um, well, like I said, I just we don't have a designer in F-sharp yet, so I just threw together some C-sharp forms and basically just had some text boxes ready so that when I clicked the button and I kicked off the asynchronous workflow, I also had a uh, process to say, you know, which thread am I operating on and just print that out. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it, and it's not that F-sharp made the uh, major code multi-threaded, it's that you were spinning off threads, but counting on the fact that F-sharp wouldn't inherently be thread-safe when you did that. Well, 
it, it was a F sharp asynchronous workflow. It was doing the, you know, kicking off each process and the processes were able to happen on different threads or if the threads finished, you know, with a, within a certain amount of time since I wasn't doing anything too horribly complex then it would happen on the same thread. So sometimes I did have to, you know, click the button a couple of times to make sure, hey, these are actually showing on different threads. Yeah, but but bear in mind, I mean, hear that really, really carefully, Richard. She, you know, at no point in that code did Amanda ever say, you know, thread T equals new thread. No. Right. It was It was basically... You know, the asynchronous workflow is essentially a library inside right. of F Sharp. This is not a, this is not something that's baked into seems, the language. Yeah, it's I was just, gonna. I was wondering because you're using. I, I was thinking the asynchronous model in .NET, and I was thinking Windows Workflow. Um, what? So, yeah. Thanks for clarifying. So this is a library in F Sharp that will kick off threads for you. Right. Exactly. And that's part of the attraction here is that developers don't really want. I mean. It, it's 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 kind of hard in some respects to stand up here and say, oh, developers don't want to do this because there are definitely a classification of people who will say, no, 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 I really want to do that because, hey, that's cool and I want to, you know, make my resume look stronger. Number one, those people I don't care so much about. There are a number of other developers who say, well, I kind of want to be able to control, you know, how many threads are running because I have certain constraints in place and so forth. And so, this is not about trying to take away that power from them. You know, certainly the thread class is never going to go away. Right. But a vast majority of people, we don't want to have to worry about these threads. You know, we, we don't want to have to worry about manage, managing them and, and coordinating them and so forth. I mean, again, think about your classic WinForms scenario. We spend a significant amount of time, you know, debugging code, trying to figure out, oh, right, that's right. You're not supposed to do anything to the GUI from anything other than the GUI thread. We spend too much time thinking about threads. In the code that she wrote, you just basically say, hey, go do this. Go make this, you know, it, it looks like a language construct, basically. Go do that. And lo and behold, it is done. It is either done on the same thread or it is done on separate threads or whatever, but it is done. Hmm. Right? And that's... It's interesting. I mean, and I, I'm thinking I'm pretty more, I'm more comfortable than you are, Ted, saying people don't actually want to do this. You don't do multi-threaded because it's fun. You do it because you need some aspect of it to benefit your user. You want your form to stay responsive while long-running tasks are running or stuff to be updated. You don't. You didn't actually go out there to do multi-threading. You, you went out there to, to achieve something in the way your app worked. And if you could do it without multi-threading, you would. Well, I, you know, again, just just trying to be careful here. There, are, there is a group of people I think who who do, in fact, spin up threads because, you know, they believe it is necessary. They believe it will make their application better. There's, you know, I remember... Apparently they work on the Outlook team. I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) 65 threads. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't hear the Jeff Richter show, but he he mentions... uh, uh, looking at Outlook when it's doing absolutely nothing and seeing that there were 65 active threads in the product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, this is, this is again, this is part of the problem, right? We, we, we have, there's lots of cases, and I'm sure, I mean, let's be fair, I'm sure that on the Outlook team, there are, there are, every one of those threads was spun up for good reason, Right. I mean, at the time they were doing this, they thought this is absolutely necessary. We need to do this. This, this needs, you know, this button right here needs to have its own thread to manage the animation around that button. <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, this is this is part of the problem. You know, take take for a moment. We're laughing about the fact that Outlook has sixty five threads going, but you know, how many more how many more of the Moorsian cycles, right? You know, the the, the Moore's law cycles. Is it going to take before we have sixty four cores right. available to us? Right. Yeah, the same way that for a long time we let our software be fat because we knew the processor would catch up and take it over. That's right. People are getting thread happy, anticipating the fact that, that there will be an infinite supply of them. Well, and the other thing, quite honestly, we're, we're going to need to get to a point where we start thinking about things in greater concurrent fashion because the Quake optimization rule is no longer going to hold, right? It's no longer going to be in effect. All right, now you got to define the quake optimization yeah, rule. Oh, please. oh, I'm sorry. Okay, the quake optimization rule. This is the rule that says basically, you know, if your boss comes to you, your code is running too slowly. Um, you basically look at the code. You take about a week or so to look at the code, look at where you can get some, you know, performance optimizations, et cetera, and then you go back to them and say, you know what, it's going to take me about 18 months to get sort of a 2x performance improvement. And your boss says, well, that's all right. And then basically you go back to your cube, you sit on your hands for 18 months playing Quake, and you wait for Intel to release the next generation of processors. <laughs> mm. It's a beautiful thing, really. In the meantime, you just play Quake. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you guys' bosses are way more lenient than mine. <laughs> uh, my boss is very lenient. <laughs> I met that guy. He's crazy. <laughs> But I mean that that sense of we're just going to wait for the processors to get faster is I mean it's done right it's been done for several years now and you know we're just kind of waking up to the fact that we're never going to go back to that world right yeah. I mean we're, we're we're we are going into a world that consists of more cores not faster cores for all practical purposes we can assume that you know processors will stay at 2. Point something gigahertz for the rest of time until we get to quantum computing or some weird shit like that. Yeah. Well, they're, they're hovering now in and around three, but you know, the P4 really broke down when it got to four, it was too fast. Probably, you know, problems arose like the fact that it would burn a hole through your floor. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing, Joe Armstrong, the guy who invented Erlang, which is another one of those functional languages that everybody's talking about. He pointed something out that I didn't know. This was at uh, the Jau conference in uh, London in March of this year. He said that Intel had finally run into a limitation that even they couldn't get around, and it's the speed of light. That, in fact, the problem that they were running into is the fact that they could not get from one end of the chip to the other in a single clock cycle. That's been a problem for a while now because chips are that complicated. There's that much in them. Right, right. And so the goal then was, okay, if we can't get across the chip in a single clock cycle, rather than trying to re-architect the silly thing, we're just going to try to break this up into cores and we'll go, you know, we'll scale out that way rather than just getting faster. You know, all of which is to say, look, we're getting a, we're getting to a point where we laugh now that Outlook has 65 threads, but it's not, it's not too far down the road when we, you know, I'm going to have 64 cores sitting here on my desk in my hotel room. And and happy that Outlook's actually taking advantage of them, sort of. Sort of. Well, by that point, Outlook will probably have 265 threads as it just sits there. But, you know, who knows? But is the real issue here that having developers spin them up... I mean, I see two problems with multi-threading. One is that I think forcing to spin them up all the time, whether you need them or not, and paying that that overhead of constantly switching between threads is questionable. But also... Multi-threaded code, in my experience, is so debug-proof. 
by debug proof meaning it's ridiculously difficult to debug. Yeah, highly resistant to finding and fixing problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, and let's be honest, it's not hard to spin up a thread, right? You know, thread t equals new thread t dot yeah. start. Off we go. Um, the hard part is, like you say, definitely making sure that everything works, right? The 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 non-deterministic nature of thread scheduling means that you know we can't really we can't really safely predict what 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 execution order this stuff is going to come in which means also we lose one of programmers best friends when trying to make sure that code is good which is to say unit testing right you know right. we're getting off on a huge tangent here from f sharp and you know i want to avoid the pitfall of people thinking that f sharp is just going to help them do general multi-threading better because uh, b- basically the the functional the functional part of f sharp is naturally thread safe because you're simply passing essentially code pointers and objects from one function to another and recursing through these things. So only one thread gets to operate on these items at any one time. But but it really is set up for those functional, uh, for the things that lend themselves well to a functional program, like iterating through large volumes of data. Right. You know, right. going through tree, finding trees through um, through. I don't know. Well, is OLAP a good uh, po- uh, potential application for F Sharp? You know, navigating through OLAP cubes, or is that already done for us? And we don't have to worry about it. Well, no. I mean, you know, Amanda's probably got more experience here, you know, in this space than I do. But um, you know, one of the things that 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 I've run across is there's like F Sharp is actually a, a, a derivative. It's sort of a descendant of another language called OCaml. And there is a financial consulting firm um, on Wall Street that hires every OCaml program they can, every OCaml programmer they can get their hands on, because they do a lot of financial analysis using OCaml. Right, functional programming is very, very good for doing a lot of that, you know, high math, high calculation kinds of stuff. Right, um, and so you know, there's definitely that that aspect to things. Um, you know, there, there's, there's also, I mean, the, the, the much less, and, and you touched on this a little bit, Carl, the much less widely spoken idea behind some of this is that there are a lot of things that we do in programming today that are inherently functional in nature, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole classification of design patterns, if you will, um, that we can apply to code that we're, we're not even considering at the moment because we're so focused you know, as you pointed out, we're so focused on concurrency. It's sort of the gateway drug to get us there. Okay. Uh, can we define those patterns? Amanda, you want to you want to try to explain monads in a uh, in a conversation over the phone? <laughs> no. <laughs> and in fact, I don't say. I think that's part of the the good part of F sharp is that you don't have to know monads in order to be developing an F sharp. You get the functional stuff without all the hard stuff. Um, you do get the benefit of working with, you know, tons of data and all the, the functional things that, all the reasons that you use a functional language are there, but you also don't have the hard stuff. Like, you're not going to have to write, um, monads. You're not going to need to know what monoid means. You're going to use it if you use it, but you still have the object-oriented part there to, to kind of keep you, I don't know, feeling comfortable, feeling confident. Monads and monoid. Like, those are great words. That's what they are, too. To any... and, and what you're telling us is we don't need to know them. 
Exactly. As a <laughs> as a typical developer, you'll never need to know the words, let alone what they are. People are afraid of these things. People are afraid of of these concepts that, you know, I I can say the word monoid or, or monad just to to scare people. Um, now run away, flee. <laughs> they will too. There there are a couple of great podcasts on. You know, if you really want to learn, see what they are and how to do them, go and you know learn from an expert. Learn from a genius out there who is not me. But um, <laughs> you know, it's not something that you need to know in order to hit the floor running with F sharp. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, it, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. To Carl's point about pulling us back to F-sharp, I think Ted and I were headed down a tangent that sort of implied that uh, F-sharp was created to solve the concurrency problem, and, I, and that's simply not true. Functional programming has been around a long time. Right. Getting away from the whole multi-core thing, why functional programming? Like, what is it that it does better? Um, well, I guess... Without trying to sound too uh, recursive, I mean, functional nice. programming allows you to think in functions, right? I mean, we, we you know, as Amanda touched on it earlier, right, we spend a lot of time in the object world thinking about nouns, right, thinking about things. You know, I, I remember way, way back in the early days of, of C++ and Smalltalk, right, we were, we were told if you want to design an object system, look for the nouns in the system and then look for the things that you do with them and those are your verbs, but it was always sort of a nouns first kind of approach, right? It was always kind of a, um, you know, identify those entities and then tell us what kind of behaviors those entities have. Right. And you're talking entities, you're talking objects here. I create the right. object, I look at the methods that are attached to the object. Right, exactly, exactly. That That's sort of the object design philosophy. And the truth of it is, I think in many respects, we went too far down that path. I think we, we spent way too much time looking for the entities and the nouns and so forth. And now, if you look in a lot of the uh, the systems that people are building, if you look at, for example, a lot of the object design patterns, there are a lot of cases where we are sort of creating objects to masquerade as functions, right? I mean, you, you just thinking about, you know, the, the Gang of Four book, right? You've got the visitor pattern, which is basically about bouncing around inside of a tree, in other words, take these actions and execute these different actions against these different parts of the tree. 
Or you've got the command pattern, which says, I want to be able to wrap up a command, an execution, and, and you know, fire it against, uh, against the system, right? Or the strategy pattern, we want to be able to change. Gosh, we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we can, we can take these executions, these actions, and wrap them up inside of objects and then play them out against the system. In a functional language, we are working with execution and actions first, right? And so a lot of those, you know, a lot of those design patterns that people had sort of held as holy canon for so many years in terms of this is the way systems should be programmed, a lot of them are just first-class constructs inside of a functional programming language. And as a result, any of these kinds of action-oriented systems, right, case in point, if you're doing XSLT, you're basically writing in a functional language. Right. And XSLT mm-hmm. is intrinsically functional by sure. nature. Only programmers think in objects. I, um, I, I love talking to a client and having them tell me, you know, what they want to have done, and they're giving me kind of an algorithm. And I'm saying, well, yeah, I need to think of this in objects, though. And they have no idea what that means. They don't know how to wrap an algorithm in an object. They have no idea. In fact, just at, at DevLink uh, last weekend, uh, Ted and I are giving our, our demos, and we had a guy sitting in pretty much the front row, and he's like, well, when I think function, I think f of x, and he goes on and on, and I'm like, okay, Ted, that sounds awesome. Type it in. And he types in pretty much verbatim what the guy says, and, and it just works. It's that, that is the algorithm. That is the function. It's there. There's no object to wrap around it. So hmm. you got a ton less code. Yeah. And see, the thing of it is, again, this is historically, right, this is part of the reason why the functional community had kind of been left on the fringe because, you know, the object community had sort of resonated with the programming, you know, the the, the hordes of programmers first, and so they were sort of entrenched in place when, when functional languages really started to take effect, if you will, when functional languages were really sort of experiencing their, you know, a large part of their research and, and growth. Um, and it was just, okay, well, if it's a choice between objects or functions, well, gosh, I'll, I'll stick with objects every time. And this is why the, the fact that we're talking about these hybrid languages, right, these fusion languages that are taking objects and functions and combining them, right, this is, this is the real area of excitement, quite frankly. Sure, because, because you get to use the appropriate tool for the job. Exactly. And there's going to be some very interesting, you know, I don't necessarily want to call them patterns, but let's, let's call them design constructs, ideas, whatever, that we can explore, that we can extract from combining these two, right? Um, and, and this is the area that's really got me kind of excited over the next, you know, five years. I think we're going to discover that there's some really interesting, um, you know, I hate to use this word because it's such a management word, but there's some really interesting synergy between the object world and the functional world that that we're just beginning to touch on. Well, I still think that there are certain applications and certain um, software challenges that really lend themselves to the functional model, and then uh, some that just don't. Oh, absolutely. And I thought of a couple more. I mean, first of all, AI has sort of been, you know, around for artificial intelligence, for lack of a better word, because... Does, it seems like an antiquated word now, but Lisp was associated with with AI for a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And really, what you're doing is you're just looking for patterns in large volumes of data, isn't that right? Like natural language processing seems like it would be really well suited. Uh, stuff that 
searches through videos and and still images for you know for recognition optical recognition or any kind of uh thing like that seems like it would be really well suited to to uh to a functional language but you know putting together a, a putting together a crud application uh i find very difficult to sort of meld those two worlds together yeah, I, th- I actually, I think that's exactly right. Anything with, you know, complex algorithms is something you're going to want to think in a functional language about. In fact, I remember sitting with my college advisor and my parents and them asking, you know, what classes do you like most in high school? You know, what, what most interests you? And, of course, I said math. I was, I've always been a math geek. I've always, you know, done exceedingly well there. And they're like, well, computer programming, you you do math all the time. And then you get <laughs> there and you're doing crud apps. I know. And it's like, yeah. this isn't really any, this has nothing to do with math. This doesn't really do anything for me. I'm not being challenged. And then you see functional languages and it's like, oh my gosh, all these complex algorithms that I've been coming up with, I can easily put them into, into a programming language so I can help the scientific world. I can help, you know, the financial world, anybody who has large amounts of data. It's, you know, you can actually build the algorithm instead of building the CRUD app. And I think it's fair too, you know, Within a, we talk about CRUD apps, right? We talk about you know a guy I used to work for years and years and years ago basically described this you know million dollar system that we were building. He described it as basically dialogues and data, right? And let's be honest, right? There's nothing sort of intrinsically object centric about that either. It's just you know we're just taking some data, displaying it to the user, letting them change it, and pushing it back. We could have done that years and years and years ago using traditional client server tools and procedural tools sure. and whatnot. Yeah, COBOL knocks that stuff out. Totally. Yeah, exactly. The The thing of it is, most applications are more than just that, though. There's a, there's a slew of business rules. There's a slew of transformative logic that needs to be applied. And again, this, we, we, we don't want to stand here and, you know, and try to suggest to the C-sharp or VB programmer that they are obsolete, that they need to immediately abandon their object languages. There's a lot of things that objects do really, really well, but a lot of that transformative logic is something that would actually be more easily expressed in a functional language in many cases. Interesting. You know, I mean, it, it, classic case in point, right? You look, at, you look at things like compilers. Compilers are intrinsically transformative. Take source, turn it into, uh, you know, turn it into some sort of compiled or interpreted output, right? It is much, much quicker and easier, quite frankly, to write a compiler, to write an interpreter in a functional language than it is in a non-functional language. Well, that's and, not exactly business logic, though. Well, but but here we go. You know, the the, the next the, the where I was going with this, right, is to say, all right. As we start thinking about domain-specific languages, as we start thinking about language-oriented programming, what we can see now is a path that says you as a system programmer, right, somebody who's working on more of the infrastructure, will build a language that the domain experts, the subject matter experts, the business analysts, whatever you want to call them, will, will express those business rules in, right, because that's been kind of the holy grail in many respects is to say, let's get programmers out of having to listen to the domain, translate that into programming code. If we can somehow get business people to be able to do that for themselves, then it lets us focus on more of the infrastructural stuff and lets us 
specialize in what we do well and let them specialize in what they do well. So are you suggesting that that your standard run-of-the-mill business rules and layer in a in an NTR application of today should you should consider using a functional language to express those business rules? Potentially. Yeah. Like, uh, isn't it just, is, is there anything broken with if price is greater than $100, then use UPS? Well, but that's kind of like saying, you know, let me, let me back up. There's nothing wrong with that, Carl. And as a result, there's no reason for you to use an object language either. Because if else is not intrinsically object oriented, right? No, sure. But I mean, a lot of the data entities that you're dealing with are, are already expressed as objects. Well, they're expressed as objects because we've built them as objects. Look at it this way, right? Where, where, where is the greatest collection of sets and tuples in any business system? The database. The database, right. So here's what we're doing. We're basically taking sets and tuples, and we are then extracting them and sort of forcing them into this object mold in order to be able to use an object language to what purpose? Boy, that sounds awful ORM-y. Well, I'm not going down that path. <laughs> I'm not going down that path. But functional languages have intrinsic support for tuples and sets and lists and recursive right. programming. And does it surprise you all of a sudden when I say SQL is a functional language by nature? And Link, for that matter. Exactly, right? Link has a lot of functional constructs inside of it. So it is not too far of a stretch, however heretical it might sound, it is not too far of a stretch to suggest that your CRUD apps are actually much closer to being functional in nature than they are, in, than they are objects in nature. I don't know, man. <laughs> I know. It's, it's a know. lot to swallow. <laughs> I, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just couldn't swallow it Somebody all. Somebody call 911. Carl's choking. We consider C-sharp a general-purpose language, mm -hmm. but it's actually a general-purpose object language. A general-purpose class language. Well, Everything class language. You know, okay. the thing that I'm getting hung up on is that a lot of, a lot of the value of developing, um, you know, rules in a in a language is readability and maintainability and when i look at f sharp and i look at haskell readability isn't on the top of the list in terms of the features of this language you know do you know what i'm saying i hear what you're saying but i'm going to suggest two things number one um i'm sure right i mean number one the the, the classic defense that comes to mind is well, I could certainly show you some C-sharp code that's not very readable. And that's not really a, a defense, right? That's sort of like saying, you know, that's sort of buying into the you suck, I'm cool style of argument that seems to be so popular in this industry. You know, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely code out there written in Haskell and F-sharp and Scala that is hard to read, no question, right? Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, I think part of that is because the people who read that, they're familiar with those particular idioms. And this gets into the second point. There are certain language constructs, there are certain language idioms that we sort of get used to, right? I mean, there's a, there's a great classic introduction. I forget which, which book it is. It's an old C++ book, I think it is, um, where the guy says, basically, if somebody were to walk up to you and says, friend of mine, dine spouse with me this evening? What do you know? Number one, you're pretty sure you've just been invited to dinner. Number two, 
this is probably not a native English speaker, right? The words are correct, they're pronounced correctly, but they're strung together in a really, really weird way, and you're not quite sure what, what you know, it's just off. It's just odd. You have to spend some time learning the language idioms as well as the language core. You know, I guess the, 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 the sort of the back and forth argument we're having here is moot until we see something that we can actually tangibly say, ah, yes, this this is a you know, line of business application with the logic expressed mm-hmm. in a functional language and it is readable and it is more elegant. You know, I'd love to see an application like that. There's an interesting problem here, which is, you know, you said this early on, Ted, the CLR is very much inherently uh, an, an object land. And the fact that we're bringing F sharp to run under the CLR means somewhere we're transforming these functional constructs into something that works with the CLR. I wonder if F sharp's just not going to perform well. Well, let's see some. Let's see an example in Haskell in in a non CLR environment. Are you asking for a business app in Haskell? Yeah, sure. Well, and this is where we get into an issue, you know, Haskell and some of the other functional languages, because they're not part of this rich, vibrant ecosystem, it's going to be harder for them to build a business app, right? I mean, you know, there is a, I think there is a UI, you know, library for Haskell, but it's not going to be anywhere near as rich, you know, or sophisticated or any of that kinds of stuff. Um, and I don't think, and again, I don't necessarily want to get, you know, because I'm worried that that gets us down this 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 slippery slope of, F sharp has to do everything that C sharp does, but better. Well, no, I'm, I'm just an- I'm just answering what you said about you know that right. that business logic and line of business applications could be written in functional language, and and it might actually be more elegant. I'd, and I'm just saying I'd like to see. I think I think what he's saying is is kind of true because you do have a lot less code and. A lot of the examples that you're seeing right now in any functional language is they're being written for other functional programmers. So a functional programmer can read my stuff even though it's not self-documenting. Whereas if you take a C-sharp developer, if you take a VB.NET developer, and you get them programming with functional languages, they're already taught to make things self-documenting. They're naming things in such a way that you're going to intuitively be able to read them. You're going to be able to understand them because there's a lot less of the ceremony. You don't have a lot of the the extra stuff with the parentheses and the the brackets and all the extra stuff that doesn't really mean anything to us. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that, you know, for example, functional languages will allow that, that you know, right now the traditional object languages don't is a, a huge flexibility in terms of the naming of functions and, and so forth to the point where, to a large degree, functional languages don't have operators in the sense that a traditional object language does, right? We don't have special recognition for the plus character. And so functional languages will frequently sort of invent their own operators, which are just methods. They're methods with funny names, to put it very bluntly. Hmm. Um, but this is going to throw a lot of your traditional C-sharp and VB programmers for a loop because they're going to see some code that says, you know, X colon colon Y. They're going to go, what the heck is that? I don't understand. That's not an operator. What is this? Because they're not familiar with it. They're not going to know where to go look. They're not going to be able to figure out what's happening. As we get greater familiarity with this stuff, as we get greater conversance with this stuff, one of the things that, for example, a functional language allows us to do, F-sharp demonstrates this, is to be able to take functions and essentially string them together in a pipeline fashion. F-sharp provides an operator, right, the vertical pipe right arrow uh, operator called the pipeline operator 
that says, all right, I'm going to string together a bunch of functions that take, you know, a parameter, and I'm basically going to pass this, when I, when I invoke this higher order function, as they're called, I'm going to pass this in through this pipeline until I get out to the other side. Yeah. It's an incredibly elegant way of writing code, uh, of being able to compose smaller pieces into larger pieces. Um, your traditional object programmer is going to be thrown by this because this is a completely sort of 90-degree different approach to thinking about design, to thinking about implementation and so forth. And so this is what I mean about some of those idioms, right? We're going to be looking for, you know, scenarios. I mean, it's kind of, it goes back to, I guess, the old, the old adage, right? If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, what we need to do is we need to stop for a little while. We need to think about, you know, a business application, not just we need to turn this into objects and apply this, you know, these behaviors, but we need to think about it as well as now what parts of my business logic are functional? What parts of my business logic can be expressed more easily in functional terms, in algorithmic terms? Because I'm willing to bet you that if we stop and look at that, if we really take a step back and look at a lot of the business applications that we're dealing with, you know, the applications, for example, when we do calculations, right, some of the accounting systems that we build, a lot of these rules, I would imagine, again, I'm, I'm hypothesizing here. I'm not saying this from a, from a position of authority. I would imagine as we start looking at them, you know, with, with sort of a functionally aware eye, we're going to start to see where more of those, those functional kinds of things are applicable. And we're going to say, oh, wow, if I do it this way, I'm not trying to break logic up across a class hierarchy. I'm capturing it into a single function. And I'm, you know, I don't have to think in objects and make all of my stuff follow an object paradigm. I can start that which naturally follows an object paradigm can flow, can stay inside the business object, and that which naturally wants to stay outside of the object can sit inside of a function. Well, I, for one, would love to see that application. Are you guys going to do anything like that in your book? I don't know if we're going to... The book is F-sharp in a nutshell, right? It's an O'Reilly nutshell title. Mm -hmm. And so typically, you know, the the, the focus is to try to get people up to speed with the language and so forth. You know, it, it, it wants to be, you know, not necessarily real long on theory. I mean, if you look at, like, C-sharp in a nutshell, you don't see a lot of coverage around object design principles and stuff like that. At the same time, though, being honest, you know, we want people to sort of understand why functions are good, why functional is important. So, yeah, I think we're going to be looking in many respects for ways to sort of highlight, you know, Mm -hmm. where functional is important, you know, where this would be useful, et cetera. I don't know if we're going to build like a, you know, a, a fictitious business app and, and put the business rules in, in, in a functional form. But, you know, we're definitely, we're definitely thinking about how to get people to, to grok functions. Right? It's pretty much the source of every one of our arguments so far. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, yes, yes. We're, 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 we're trying to come to some agreement as to how exactly is the best way to present this world to a collection of, of, you know, object programmers, basically. Right. Well, and the interesting thing here is we're really bringing, with this coming into studio, we're going to have a totally different kind of language in studio. Yeah. And now, you know, you, you now have that debate about it. Is this a better, is it better to code it over here and integrate it? All of those choices. I'm just going to be fascinated to see how it performs and behaves uh, running inside of an environment that in some ways to me seems hostile to it. 
Well, and and you raised a a question earlier, Richard, that I want to go back to. You know, F-sharp running on top of the CLR, the fact that the CLR has this sort of built-in notion of objects doesn't mean that F-sharp is going to run slowly. There are definitely things that a that a functional execution engine, that a functional compiler will do that right now the CLR either does not do or does poorly. But number one, let's not assume that the CLR is a finished piece of software, right? Right. As, as F-sharp grows in, um, in acceptance, as it grows in, in people using it as part of their, their applications, there will be a natural pressure on Microsoft, the CLR team, to make the CLR friendlier to uh, functional languages, just as there's been a huge push to make the CLR friendlier to dynamic languages, right? Right. Um, and so I think we're going to start to see the CLR evolve at those lowest levels to become better and faster for those quote-unquote alternative languages. Um, you know, so right now, F-sharp, I mean, it compiles down to IL, right? So it's going to be yep. as fast as C-sharp. Um, what could potentially happen is, you know, how you express certain development scenarios could be done much, much faster, right? Again, you start talking about doing certain analysis kinds of scenarios, certain kinds of, of you know, uh, OLAP and potentially OLTP transformations, right? Data loads and transformations. This is stuff that could potentially be written faster in F-sharp uh, and execute with the same speed as C-sharp or VB, Right. Again, it's a question of using the right tool for the job. Yeah, I do think it's got to be a challenge inside Microsoft, those guys taking these F-sharp language constructs and uh, making them IL. That can't be easy. That's a very interesting problem. It's not that hard, actually. I mean, if you take F-sharp code and throw it through Reflector, you, you end up seeing that you know the, the, what, what they are generating out of the F-sharp compiler is not really all that different from what you would have done if you wanted to write the equivalent in C-sharp. You know, so tuples basically turn into, like, you know, structs. I mean, right. you know, they, they, they turn into value types. Um, you know, so definitely, you know, I don't want to sort of leave listeners with the impression that F-sharp is this really, really wild and exotic, oh, my God, the CLR is, is totally out in left field if it tries to support this stuff. turns out that most of it aligns fairly naturally. Um, it's just that the language semantics are different. And yeah, there has to definitely be some adjustment there, right? But that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Um, it just, it's a thing, right? It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. We just have to sort of figure out what, what, what that mapping will be like and how to make sure it'll execute with good performance. Right, and that's actually that's one of the ways I always tell people to go and start learning is is use Reflector, start writing some code or download some some examples and see what's actually going on behind the scenes. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you understand what this would translate to in C sharp, then you can kind of understand what it's doing in F sharp just a whole lot easier. Speaking of downloading code, is there a good place uh, for the center of the universe for functional languages out there that you can tell us about? Resources? Um, well, I always go to HubFS. HubFS is great for any kind of examples or advice while you're programming. Um, those guys are awesome. HubFS? HubFS. Yeah, hub as in spoken hub. Yep. Right? Uh, HubFS. I think it's HubFS.net or .org or something like that. Okay. I, don't, I don't remember offhand. Google it. It's HubFS.net. Um, Don Symes weblog is another good place to hang out okay. um, because he's the creator of F Sharp, and so yep. product announcements and links and so forth are, are 
you know, typically carried through his blog. The F-Sharp team is gearing up to be a full partner in the Visual Studio space, so I imagine they'll get a, a dev center up on MSDN before too long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there'll probably be some F-Sharp, you know, sample code from various people in, in, in industry. Matthew Podwisaki. Um, Dustin Campbell. Yeah, these guys are uh, Chris um, Chris Smith. Chris Smith, yeah. Yeah, these are all people who are prominent bloggers who talk about F sharp. Harry Pearson, yeah. who's the PM on Iron Python, before he took up that job, he was talking a lot about F sharp and still does periodically. Um, and he's got some interesting examples related with F sharp and parsing, right? Okay. Parsing like text and so forth. Hmm. Rob awesome. Pickering's got some stuff out there. I just noticed Kevin Hazard just put some stuff out there. There's a ton. Actually, every day you, you search for it, there's more and more people who are learning F-sharp and, and understanding it at different levels. So it's great kind of no matter what level you are, there's going to be some tools out there for you. So right. when's the book coming out? Oh, how about that local sports team? <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm leaving this one to Ted. <laughs> some, someday soon. Yeah, uh, ideally, you know, depending, I mean, as as with most projects, right, you have when you'd like it to be out and when it will be out. Um, I'd like it to be done already. I just. I, you know, I think we can, part of the goal that we wanted to do is we wanted to have, you know, sort of the, the part one, sort of the language section uh, available as an O'Reilly rough cut uh, by the time the, the community tech preview came out. Um, I don't know that we're going to hit that, but it should be available fairly shortly thereafter. Because okay. you know, they do maybe. seem to be hinting that the CTP is imminent, right? I mean, there was blog posts from the from the team back in late July saying it's coming real soon now. So. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, you know, I think this is one of those where, and, and I don't have I don't have any particular privileged information here, so I'm I'm hypothesizing, right? I'm guessing. Uh, they originally said end of summer, early fall, right? And so right. we're approaching that time frame. You know, part of me wonders if they're going to release the CTP during PDC because that would be kind of the time to do it. You know, because I know they're mm-hmm. doing some some demos, precons, etc. There at PDC around F sharp. Yeah, but that would be that would put it at late October, and it almost makes sense to have it sooner, and right. and, and just so people have a chance to take it out for a spin and have more to talk about at PDC. Right. Mm. Yeah, and so you know, sometime between then and now, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Well, we'll be but, looking for it. Yeah, it's it's you know, it is as you say, imminent. It's definitely going to be out soon. And yeah. you know, Amanda and I are you know furiously. Uh, writing slash arguing, trying to figure out how best to uh, to approach this. Um, but, you know, we want to have that out fairly soon so it can get in the hands of people. The actual treeware, Dead Trees version, probably, you know, probably sometime, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, probably sometime middle of next year would be my guess. Okay. So, you know, it's not... You know, it's it's we we it's not like we're putting the finishing touches on the whole book right now, right? I mean, we just we just started talking to O'Reilly about this project at okay. TechEd, which was a couple months ago. Well, guys, it's been uh, been a fabulous talk. It's always fun to talk to you, Ted and Amanda. Thanks for uh, thanks for tagging along. It was good to talk to you as well. And uh, well, what can I say? Come back. <laughs> you sure I'm allowed back? Of course you are. Do I have to bring new people, or can I like start re, uh, uh, regurgitating some of the old ones? I have a new goal to be the first repeat TED 
crutch. Ah, <laughs> oh, there you go. go. I think you, Amanda, I think you should just come on the show on your own. <laughs> I'm going to have to ditch that guy. <laughs> some guy. <laughs> yeah, ditch some guy. Yep. Well, Amanda Locker and some guy, thank you very much again. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 